Hey, thanks for listening to Cornerstone Church. You can find us on the web at akcornerstone.org. And we want you to know it's our prayer that the Holy Spirit will use this message to either save you through the good news about Jesus Christ, grow you into the likeness of Jesus, or send you to proclaim Jesus in the Spirit's power. Um, So we're going to dive into uh, the scriptures here today. But before we get into the the passage, there's a a well-known song called For the Love of Money. And I'm not talking about a rap song by uh, the group Bone Thugs and Harmony, but the one sung in the, in, in the 70s by a group called uh, OJs. And it starts, the song, as you guys, I'm sure all of us have heard that song. It starts off with a very cool bass line. I can't even, it's so cool I can't even mimic it for you. Um, and, and then the words, money, 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 money. And those are all the words I knew to the song for the longest time. Because that's the only part of the song that you would hear in movies or, or different commercials. But I wanted to read some of these other lyrics in the song. The singer sings this. For the, love, for the love of money, people will steal from their mother. For the love of money, people will rob their own brother. For the love of money, people can't even walk the street. Because they never know who in the world they're going to beat. For that lean, mean, mean, green, almighty dollar money. For the love of money, people will lie. Lord, they will cheat. For the love of money, people don't care who they hurt or beat. For the love of money, a woman will sell her precious body for a small piece of paper. It carries a lot of weight. Call it lean, mean, mean, and green. And it's interesting that you can find a hit song in every genre of music about money. Country, rap, hip-hop, so forth. It's also interesting that many songs will also quote scripture. For example, this song here that I, uh, the lyrics I read to you refers to the words that Paul writes to Timothy in, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, speaking of the love of money. And it's also interesting how much Jesus spoke about money. For example, uh, in Matthew 13, 22, in the parable of the sower, when Jesus is describing the, the seeds uh, that, are, that, are, that are thrown among the different types of soils rep, which represent the human heart. It's interesting that he speaks of, 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 of the heart as, as one of thorns. And he writes, As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. Speaking there of the love of money. And the fate of many will be the same as that of the rich young ruler from Matthew 19, 21 through 22, where after having this uh, beautiful dialogue, this challenging dialogue with this rich young ruler, Jesus says to him in closing, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful. Why? For he had great possessions. Jesus also explains that there's a link between the things we treasure and our own hearts in Matthew 6.21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And the bottom line is it does come down to an allegiance in Matthew 6.24, where he says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money or mammon. Brad had preached a great message last week, and I, I wanted to follow it up with uh, follow teaching on the same topic by going to the Old Testament. It's, uh, and really, the hardest here is that 
just, it's a beautiful thing that when you look at the scriptures, it is really one cohesive whole. And uh, we're actually going to be spending time in the book of Ecclesiastes. And it's interesting that you can find warnings about pursuing wealth all throughout the Old Testament. So when Jesus was teaching, he is the greatest wisdom teacher. He was pulling from, uh, from all from the Old, Old Testament scripture. For example, uh, Exodus twenty seventeen, one of the, the, well, the last commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not cover, covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Clearly a warning against pursuing wealth. The prophets also warned against pursuing wealth. Isaiah 5, 8 through 9. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field, until there is no more room and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. Even the wisdom literature in the scripture warns us against the pursuit of riches. Proverbs 23, 4 through 5. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone, for suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. Proverbs 28, 22. A stingy man hastens after wealth and does not know that poverty will come upon him. With that, now we come to another text here, the wisdom literature in Ecclesiastes. And the beautiful thing about Ecclesiastes is that it offers a unique perspective on human life. And it's often, uh, the reason why I wanted to spend time in Ecclesiastes is because it's often a, a book that we tend to avoid, whether intentionally or unintentionally, but you come to read it and because it's full of this, it's wisdom literature and it's full of different, uh, you know, different literary structures, we're like, man, like this is, some of this makes no sense. And uh, I've shared with you before that one of the biggest mistakes that I made uh, and I found out while going to Bible college is I didn't, fa- I didn't pay enough attention to like those basic English literature classes when I was growing up. And, and so if you're, if you're a young person here and you're beginning to study literature and you feel it's pointless, just trust me, like understand grammar, understand literature, the different genres. It's only going to help you become a, a better Bible reader. And, and then more of the scripture is going to come, uh, come to life as you, as, you, as you study literature. But one theologian comments this about Ecclesiastes. He says this, The book of Ecclesiastes is one of the most important possessions of the Christian church since it compels us to continually evaluate and correct our understanding of God and our teaching about God in the light of the whole of biblical revelation. The reflections of the sage in Ecclesiastes unmask the myth of human autonomy and self-sufficiency and drive us in all our frailty and inability to find meaning in a crooked world in the creator-creature relationship. And he continues, Moreover, Ecclesiastes is relevant especially for our culture because it tackles many of the temptations posed by secularism. Leland Riken calls Ecclesiastes the most contemporary book in the Bible, Ecclesiastes is a satiric attack on an inquisitive, hedonistic, and materialistic society. It exposes the made quest to find satisfaction in knowledge, wealth, pleasure, work, fame, and sex. It tackles every single one of those issues. And in fact, we're led by this teacher who's saying, you know what? I, as your teacher, the writer of Ecclesiastes, am going to show you how every one of these different things is nothing but vanity apart from God. So here we come to the fifth chapter of Ecclesiastes, and 
Speaking of the real audience that he's speaking to, during this time there was a hunger for riches when the teacher wrote Ecclesiastes. The land of Israel had, had become a province in this huge empire ruled by the Ptolemies from Alexandria, Egypt. At this point in history, international trade was, was booming. Some people struck it rich. Others would do anything to become rich. The teacher wants to warn God's people against pursuing these riches and instead to encourage them to enjoy God's daily gifts. So he presents this message in a form which is favored in the ancient Near East. And remember when I was talking about literary structures? He presents it in this form. When you read Ecclesiastes 5, 8 through, through 6, 9, it's in this literary structure called a chiasm. C-H-I-A-S-M, if you want to look it up. But you can picture uh, a chiasm as, as a step pyramid where the author is trying to make points, but he's going to make point A, right? So picture you're at the bottom of the step pyramid. He's going to make point A, point B, point C. Then he's going to have his conclusion on D here if we're, if we're using these letters to symbolize. And then he's going to work his way back to point C, B, and A. So it's all like it's all out of whack and out of order, but, but it's there intentionally because it's a, it's a literary device that they use during this time. But us in the West, we're a lot more linear, right? So I'm going to combine these points, all right? And we're going to bounce back and forth in this text. But we're just going to nail it here in three points, all right? So it is a three-point message today. So the first point, people who pursue wealth will not be satisfied. And we're going to cover Ecclesiastes 5, 8 through 12, and then jump to Ecclesiastes 6, 7 through 9. <clears throat> in five through, uh, five, chapter 5, 8 through 12, he writes, If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over him. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. So here, the author begins by saying is, don't be surprised when you see oppression of the poor. Don't be surprised when you, when you see violation of justice. Because what's really happening is you have, during this time, you have these high officials who are corrupt, who are driven by the love of money. And not only are they oppressing the poor, but they're also watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. And what the writer there is saying is this, is that, man, there's just this network of relationships where, 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 where the rich in this category are looking out for each other's interests, and they both have that common ground of, of just... Uh, I mean, being driven by the love of money. But in 9, he says, this is gain for land in every way a king committed to cultivated fields. Whereas if, if a king was, was, was genuinely caring about the people's needs, he would cultivate a field. Because every seventh year, the field, uh, the field would, would, would be open to those uh, that did not have, and they could pick crop as well. But this king as a land that remains fallow. Next, the teacher warns those who seek to be rich. In verse 10, he says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. This verse, with its repetition of the lover of money and the lover of wealth, focuses on those who place money and wealth before anything else in their lives. They live for the money. Never mind if it violates justice. They pursue money as their goal in life. It's an unattainable goal, and the teacher warns them they will not be satisfied because wealth, wealth is not the problem here. 
It's this insatiability of those who love money. There's always more that they want. Always something else is what our teacher is saying. The teacher sums up his point on the pursuit of money. He says, this also is vanity. That is to say, it's like pursuing a vapor. It's empty. It's futile. It does not satisfy in the end. Like the teacher, the apostle Paul warns in 1 Timothy 6.10, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of, of evils. It is through the craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Paul calls this teaching the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ earlier in verse 3. Jesus himself warned his disciples, as Brad had preached last week, in Luke 12, 15, he says, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And Jesus, to even underscore his point, told the parable of the rich fool who built bigger barn to store all his grain and his goods. The rich fool said, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Jesus concluded, So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Coming back to Ecclesiastes, verse 11, he writes, When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? What is he saying? When goods increase, so do its consumers. When people become rich, they're going to need a maid to clean their house, a gardener to trim their lawn, a nanny to watch their kids, a chauffeur to drive their car, an accountant to keep their books, a broker to invest their money, a bodyguard to protect themselves and their family. All these people and more have to be paid. In addition, the tax man will require a good cut. Charities will fill their mailboxes with requests for donations. They're also discovered that they have many so-called friends who would like to receive some of that money as well. He's saying when goods increase, those who eat them increase. And what gain has the owner of it? Nothing. There's no gain. All the owner can do is watch, is to see them with his eyes. So the owner merely gets to watch as other, others consume his goods. There's no gain for the owner is what he's telling us. And not only is there, no gain, is, there, is there no gain for the owner of wealth, but riches, he's saying, are also a liability. Verse 12, sweet is a sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. So the laborers here may refer to the oppressed poor mentioned in verse 8. Sometimes they have only very little food to eat, but whether they eat little or much, they sleep well. But he tells us the rich, on the other hand, don't have it so easy. We often think if only I had all these things, all this money, I wouldn't have a single concern. I would live a carefree life. And sure, there is some kind of logic in that kind of thinking. Money does help in some ways. But what our teacher is saying is having all the wealth and money still doesn't ultimately lead to a carefree life. Just as you earned it, you can lose it. And this battle will keep you up late in the evenings at times. So in this first point, the teacher has given three reasons why people who pursue wealth will not be satisfied. One, he says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money. Two, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. And three, the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. So in his final point, the last step down the pyramid, the teacher adds more more people who will not be satisfied pursuing wealth. Now we're going to skip over to to chapter 6, verse 7. He writes, all the toil of, of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. 
He's writing that we, we work in order to eat, yet the appetite is not satisfied. Come morning, we feel hungry again. And the appetite here refers not only to our appetite for food, but also appetite for wealth. And he's saying that our appetite for wealth and possessions will never be satisfied. And keep in mind, he's speaking to, I mean, he's speaking to, to an audience, all right? That is, that, is, that is really like, I mean, during this international trade boom, is, I mean, really like they're, they're, they're really trying to make sense of life and, and what is the meaning of life. And all throughout Ecclesiastes, he's going to address these different topics. Chapter 6, verse 8. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And the expected answer to this rhetorical question is none. With respect to their appetite for food and riches, neither the wise nor fools will ever, will ever be satisfied. It doesn't matter if you're a wise or if you're a fool. But the poor, he says, amazingly have an advantage. Verse 8. And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Somehow the poor know how to conduct themselves properly. And what do the poor have that guides them to proper behavior? Look at verse 9. Better is the sight of the eyes and the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after win. So he's telling us that the poor live by the sight of their eyes. In other words, he's saying that they're content with what they have. And the poor are simply enjoying their daily bread. The lovers of money, in contrast, are not content with God's daily gift of food, drink, and work. Their wandering desire always wants more and more. Their appetite is never satisfied. And the teacher judges this also is a vanity and a chasing after the wind. The wandering desire is futile. It comes up empty as if one had literally been chasing the wind. Again, he's reemphasizing his point. People who pursue wealth will not be satisfied in the end. And this may be common knowledge for us as believers, but how often do we forget that simple truth? Point number two. The teacher is going to make this point that the evil of people not enjoying life in verses 5, 13 through 17, and 6, 1 through 6. So having made his point that people who pursue wealth will not be satisfied, the teacher moves to the second point. It is evil when people don't enjoy their life. For this point, we'll have to turn back to uh, 5.13 now, where he writes, There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. So the teacher calls this a grievous ill, literally a sickening evil. See, these people kept their riches. They did not enjoy them. In fact, what does he tell us? They hoarded them. Have you seen or, or, or watched the show called Hoarders? It's a show about people that just, just hoard everything. And, and maybe some of you have seen that show, and some of you may be thinking, they're crazy, I couldn't live like that. That's too extreme, but yet all of us share in their shame. Because you and I, just like them, are our natural hoarders. But we get a fresh look in the mirror when we hear of the rich fool in Jesus' parable. He built bigger barns to store all his grain and his goods, thinking that he had made it for many years to come. These people, too, kept their riches, but somehow lost them in a bad business venture. It could have been a bank failure investment that soured, or a war, or recession. There are many ways to lose one's wealth. The point is, is that overnight, these rich people became financially poor. Verse 14 emphasizes they have nothing in their hands. 
a lifetime of toil, a lifetime of hoarding, and it's all literally gone down the drain. They have nothing to show for it. And what makes it even worse is that they are parents of children. Now they have nothing, nothing to pass on. So verse 15 graphically describes their failure. It writes here, As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This statement makes us think of Job, doesn't it? Job was extremely wealthy, but he lost it all in one day. An enemy army killed his servants, plowed the fields, and carried away his oxen and donkeys. Lightning burned up his shepherds and his sheep. Another enemy killed his last servants and carried off his camels. And finally, a great wind destroyed the house occupied by his children and killed them all. Having all of his possessions as well as his children, having lost everything, Job laments in Job 121 where he writes, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. But Job was a pious man. He still worshiped God and said, The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But not so with the rich man in Ecclesiastes. Look at verse 16. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Again, he uses the phrase, this is a sickening evil, people. Just as they came, so shall they go. And what gain do they have from toiling for the wind? And the answer is what? Nothing. They have no gain. They shall take absolutely nothing for their toil. And the teacher likens their toiling for riches to toiling for the wind. You can grab for the wind. You can try to attempt to catch it with your hands, but what happens? It just slips right through your fingers. And so it is with pursuing wealth as the ultimate mean means it slips right through your fingers and just one bad venture and it's all gone. Again, he's saying just one bad venture in a lifetime is wasted. And so the teacher is being extreme. He's giving us some extreme teaching so that his hearers would reflect on their lives. And then at this point, they're asking, well, how am I living? What is, what is the compass of my life? Where is it pointed? And what is the end result? The teacher says here in verse 17, moreover, he's continuing, all his days he eats in darkness in much vexation and sickness and anger. So the rich who have lost their riches eat in darkness. In biblical times, eating was a social event. When Abraham was approached by three strangers, he rushed out to meet them and invited them to a sumptuous dinner, Genesis 6, 18. When the prodigal son returned home, the father rushed out to meet him and welcomed him with a, a lavish banquet, Luke 15. Eating together was a celebration, a social event. But here, the rich who have lost their riches eat all alone in darkness. Their so-called friends have left them. Their, their, their house has been foreclosed. Gas and electricity have been cut off officially. This phrase, they eat in darkness, they can no longer afford to light their lamps at night. But the term darkness can also mean more than the lack of light. Ultimately, darkness stands for death. The, riches, the rich who have lost their riches eat in darkness. Their life is over. There's no joy in their life. They may as well be dead. And reflecting on their wasted life, thinking of what might have been, what is the result? They not only eat in darkness, but in much vexation and sickness and resentment. 
So the teacher is piling up the painful consequences of such a wasted life. And we, again, the hearers are now, I mean, the question that they're, he's wanting them to wrestle with is, who would want to end up like that? Coming now to chapter 6, the teacher adds another story of a rich person who does not enjoy life. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It's a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. So the story is now even more tragic than the one about the rich man who lost all of his riches in a bad business venture. Here is a person to whom God has given wealth, possessions, and even honor. He has everything his heart desires. The other rich person had only one son. This one has a hundred children. The other rich person lived relatively few years. This one lives many years. God has richly blessed this man. Because think about it. Many children and a long life are what every Israelite desired. That was, that was the marking of a blessed life. But there's a problem. God does not enable this person to enjoy God's daily gifts. In contrast to chapter 519, where God was said to enable rich people to enjoy God's gift, in 6 verse 2, we read that God does not enable the rich person to enjoy his wealth and possessions. The teacher does not explain how God withholds joy. Perhaps it's through, maybe it's through the rich person's constant worrying. In any event, the teacher writes in verse 3, but, whoever, but however many are the days of his years, if he does not enjoy life's good things or has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. This person has a miserable life because he does not enjoy life's good things. In addition, he has a miserable death because he has no burial. A stillborn child is better off than he, the teacher claims. A stillborn child, better off than that rich person? It's a very shocking comparison, don't you think? But in verses 4 and 5, the teacher explains why the stillborn child is better off than the rich man who does not enjoy life's good things. Look at verse 4 and 5. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. So the stillborn child comes and goes before it experiences, in other words, the harsh realities of life. It does not see the light of day or know anything about the pain of life in this world. A long life without enjoyment is far worse than no life at all. Moreover, the rich man has no proper burial and therefore he can't find rest. It was a big deal for an Israelite to be buried. And yet this man has no burial. But yet the stillborn child, as, a, as opposed to this rich man, is able to find rest. The teacher continues, verse 6, Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place. Imagine that the rich man would live unheard of 2,000 years. What a tremendous blessing from God. 
But if he would not enjoy any of God's good gifts in all these years, his life would still be futile and empty, is the point. For even that long life would come to an end. All go to one place, dust to dust. All die and return to the earth. To live so long and yet not to have enjoyed God's good, good, God's good gifts, what is he saying? What a waste. You live 2,000 years, but you didn't enjoy God's daily gifts. What a waste. So the teacher has powerfully made two points. First, again, people who pursue wealth will not be satisfied. And second, it's evil when people don't enjoy their life. Now he's ready to make his major point, which is simply this. We are to enjoy God's daily gifts. How many of you guys are, are blessed that God desires us to enjoy life? Is that a good thing? Amen. So in contrast to this vanity and grievous ill, the teacher exclaims in chapter 5, verse 18, all right? Speaking again, remember, we're in this chiasm structure, all right? Now he says, behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which, with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. So the emphasis here falls on enjoyment, What is he saying? To find enjoyment in the common things of life. It is true that God has given us but few days on this earth. There's nothing that we can do about this, but there is something we can do about how we live those few days on earth. We can use them to pursue money and end up with vexation, sickness, and resentment. Or we can begin every morning with the goal of simply enjoying the day that God has given us. We can start with the common everyday things. The teacher suggests, hey, why don't you begin to look to God and find enjoyment in the simple everyday things of life? Food. How many love food? I love food. Amen. Drink and your work. Your work is not a curse. Don't forget, Adam worked, right? I mean, before the fall, and it was a good thing. What about the rich in verse 19? Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. So what is he saying? Wealth and money aren't bad things in and of themselves, right? I mean, like for example, our currency, the dollar, right? I mean, money is amoral. It has no morals, right? I mean, it can't, you know, it doesn't have any, any ethics, right? It's all dependent upon whose hands the money is. But the teacher is making a point that if the pursuit of wealth is the ultimate end goal, it's, it's, it's just where the compass of your life is pointed. What is he saying? In beautiful, poetic words, he's saying this is sickness. It's nothing but a vanity and a vapor. And really, the issue isn't rich versus poor. It's righteousness. But because you can have the righteous rich, you can also have the unrighteous rich, Right? But you can also have the righteous poor, and you can also have the unrighteous poor. And in verse 20, what is the benefit of enjoying God's gift of life? He writes, for he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. So The teacher ends this passage and really presents us with two ways to live. Here in Ecclesiastes, we can either spend our lives pursuing wealth, but as we learn, it's disastrous and nothing but a vapor, 
Or again, number two, we can simply focus on enjoying God's gifts every single day. And Jesus, the greatest wisdom teacher, right? He's not giving any contradiction as we cross over to the New Testament in Matthew 6.24 when he says, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus also warns us to not spend our lives pursuing wealth as the final end goal, as we read in, as you learned last week in Luke chapter 12. But Jesus also offers the alternative to greed in John 6, 27. If you'll read this with me, Jesus says, Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. But should we not work hard to earn our daily food and drink? Jesus does not think so. In Matthew six thirty-two to 33, he says that the Gentile seeks after all these things. But instead, what does Jesus urge us to do today? The same thing. As he writes, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these things will be added to you as well. Just like the Old Testament teacher, Jesus sees food and drink as gifts from God. If we strive for the kingdom of God, God will give us food and drink and whatever we need to live on this earth. But spending our life pursuing wealth is not only a waste of our brief time on earth, but will lead to certain disaster. Instead, the teacher, the greatest teacher, urges us to focus our lives on the kingdom of God and his righteousness. It's only then that we're able to operate from the posture where we can enjoy those daily things of food, drink, and toil. And again, don't forget the Apostle Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. And in closing, just wanted to read to you the story about a man named C.T. Studd. And not saying that this is the the call to everyone, but this uh, this is a man that wanted to follow Christ with everything. And he was one of the 19th century, uh, uh, I mean, greatest uh, cricket players of, of England. And after his conversion to Christ, he decided upon a missionary career. Before leaving for the mission field, he decided to give away his entire inheritance. And his, bi- his biographer writes this about him. So far as he could judge, his, in- his inheritance was 29,000 pounds. But in order to leave a margin for error, he decided to start by giving 25,000. One memorable day, January 13th, he set off four checks of 5,000 each and five of 1,000. There was no fool's plunge on his part. It was his public testimony before God and man that he believed God's word to be the surest thing on earth and that the hundredfold interest which God has promised in this life, not to speak of the next, is an actual reality for those who believe it and act on it. He sent 5,000 to a gentleman by the name of Mr. D.L. Moody, expressing the hope that he would be able to start some gospel work at Tirhut in North India, where his father had made his fortune. Moody had hoped to carry this out, but was unable to and instead used the money to start the famous Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. 5000 he sent to Mr. George Mueller, 4000 to be used on missionary work, and 1000 among the orphans. 5000 to George Holland in Whitechapel to be used for the Lord among his poor in London. And 5000 to Commissioner Booth Tucker for the Salvation Army in India. Various other organizations received the remainder of the 25000 His actual inheritance turned out to be a few thousand pounds more than he had originally figured. 
He gave some of that money to other organizations and the rest to his fiance as a wedding present. Not to be outdone, she gave that money away. The couple then went to Africa as missionaries with nothing. And our call may not, may not be the identical to C.T. Stud, but it is a call to follow Christ with everything. It is that same call that he gave to the rich young ruler to sell everything you have and follow me. It is that call to whatever it is that, that, that we value in life to give up for the sake of knowing him. And the return on investment, as the writer in Ecclesiastes is saying, is a great one indeed. Let us pray. Father, I just thank you for your word. Thank you that your word has something to say about every topic that we hold dear. And uh, God, I just thank you. I pray that you would also just stir in our hearts uh, a desire to, to know your word more and more. Lord, we thank you, God, that, um, that this life uh, that you've given us is valuable. You've given us, uh, none of us knows how many days of life we have. But we do know that we have a few to live here on earth. And God, it is our heart's prayer and desire that, um, Lord, that the remaining days of our lives on earth are spent pursuing the things of God and not the things of this world is the bottom line. And help us, God, because we're all easily distracted. God, I know, I confess, I'm so easily distracted. I'm so easily, like, uh, taken off course. And God, I just thank you for your patience that even though I can get off course and um, as well as I know, I'm sure there's many others here that, that would confess that as well. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for your grace that still compels us and welcomes us back. And God, uh, we don't want to waste our lives. We know that pursuing wealth or anything else apart from you is vanity. It's but literally chasing the wind. And God, Lord, I pray as a people, Lord, we would, we would say we're done chasing the wind. We're done chasing vapors. So, Lord, I pray that all of us, Lord, we would look at the things of our lives and ask us, really, what is it that we're pursuing? What is the end goal? And God, I pray for those that have not found much enjoyment in life, Lord. Maybe their life has been one of endless toil and drudgery, God. I pray, Lord, you would awaken them, God. Awaken them first to the person and work of Jesus Christ through the cross, through his life, death, and resurrection. And that in that awakening, that they would see that every day is a gift you've given us, and you call us to enjoy every single day. You call us to enjoy every bite of food we take and every sip of a drink we would drink. You call us to enjoy the work that you've given us, our, our vocation. So God, I pray, Lord, that there would be a renewed enjoyment in the life of your people, God. That as we go about our day and doing the everyday little things, that it would not be drudgery. But we would look at every moment as a holy moment given to us by a holy God who desires that his children enjoy the life that he's given them, the few days that they have. And God, I just ask for all of us here, Lord, I pray that the remaining days of our lives would be lived in honor of the person and work of Jesus. Help us, Lord, because we can't do it. Fill us with your spirit so that we can make much of your son Jesus in every sphere of life, God, in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our places of work, in our schools, and in any other place we would choose to venture into, God. So to you, be the glory forever and ever. 
We love you, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen.